Shall we pray? Our Father, we would ask uh, for fresh insight into your word today, and that you would apply it even in deeper and more extensive ways, cause us to reflect on our own heart, that we're not just becoming familiar with um, the words again, but there's an impact and there's an application to our hearts. Give us a greater love, a greater faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We would ask these things humbly in his name. Amen. Please open God's word with me to Luke 23. Page 884, Luke 23, beginning with verse 32. This is God's word. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus called out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath they rested, according to the commandment. Luke's account of the crucifixion is unique in a couple ways. It's unique in that it's so brief. Verse 33 in the English, it's two words. In the Greek, it's only one. They crucified him. That's it. 
no mention of the agony, no mention of the horrible death by torture. Such a brief reference could be because the Holy Spirit doesn't want us to be focusing upon the physical suffering and torture because there was two other men that were tortured next to him and they have no role in our salvation, but rather it's the spiritual significance of his death that he's taking hell for us and the sins of the world so that he might be redeemed as we trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior. So Luke is unique in the sense of brevity of the crucifixion, but Luke is also unique and that he's giving personal responses to the crucifixion. It's almost like a cameraman has showed up for the crucifixion, and instead of focusing his camera upon Christ on the cross, he's turned from the cross, and he's turning on the audience, and he's looking at all the people and all the people's responses to the cross. That's Luke's intent. He's recording this, and he's recording at least six people's responses to the death of Jesus Christ so that Theophilus and we, as we're reading this account, will start asking the question, well, what is my response to Christ? May the Lord use that today to cause us to reflect upon our response to the Lord Jesus Luke gives us three responses to the crucifixion of mocking, and he gives us three responses to the crucifixion of faith. Let's look first at the three responses to the crucifixion of mocking. First, there's the response of mocking of the religious leaders in verse 35. The people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. People were standing by and observing, and this is Passover, so there would have been large crowds, but it specifically says those that were railing on him in hatred were the rulers. Matthew specifically says that means the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. This is the Supreme Court standing and blaspheming Christ. You do remember that they wouldn't go into Pilate's judgment hall for fear of being coming unclean at Passover. But nothing's stopping them here to come to the place of death. To attack Christ and their hatred for him. Here are the tenants of the vineyard killing the beloved son of the owner of the vineyard. Those who should have been building God's kingdom are rejecting the stone, but God is going to take this stone and make him into a cornerstone as he builds a new temple to the Lord. Their words are recorded, and there's truth to their words, isn't there? He, they have to admit that he saved others. And what irony in their words. The reason that he didn't save himself and come down from the cross was so that he would save others. He didn't stay on the cross because he was weak. He stayed on the cross because he was strong. He stayed on the cross in order to accomplish our redemption. As the hymn says, it was my sin that kept him there until it was accomplished. So that all who receive him by faith are forgiven and given eternal life. The mocking of the religious leaders. There's a second response to the crucifixion of mocking, and that's the mocking of the soldiers in verses 34 and then 36. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. In verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up, offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
As the soldiers are driving nails into his hands, Jesus is praying, Father, forgive them. He's not praying for himself. In the time of his greatest need, his greatest suffering, he's facing the greatest injustice that the world has ever known. He's facing the most evil that the world has ever known, and he's not praying for himself. He's there in the role of mediator, fulfilling Isaiah 53:12. He made intercession for the transgressors. He's modeling for us. Love your enemies and pray for those. Pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5:44. So his prayer is not for himself. His prayer is to the Father for sinners. And his prayer is, God, my Father, withhold your judgment. Don't pour out your wrath on these that are crucifying the Lord of glory. Let the crucifixion continue so that I might accomplish redemption. So there's in verse 34, as the soldiers are casting lots to divide his garments, they have no idea how their lives are being spared from the wrath of God. Killing the Lord of glory, 1 Corinthians 2.8. They're taunting him, holding up sour wine. Only Luke mentions this. They're mocking him. You're the king of the Jews. And God withholds his wrath in answer to Christ's prayer and lets let the crucifixion continue. We're reminded of the parallel of Moses, how often he would intercede as the mediator for God's people, God's people who've been groaning and complaining and unbelief again, and God ready to pour out judgment on. Here comes Moses, the mediator, interceding for them. God, hold back your deserved wrath and your deserved judgment. Don't annihilate the people. Let the covenant people continue so that the line of Messiah, the line of Eve, might be here and that you would provide the Redeemer. How often God heard the prayers of Moses as he interceded, pleading that God not execute wrath, deserved wrath, even for his own people. Here's one far greater than Moses, and he's praying, God, withhold your wrath, just wrath, on those who are killing the Lord of glory. Let me die only today. Let your wrath only come to me, this one spot on the cross, so that I might accomplish redemption. Don't rescue me. Don't execute them. Father, forgive them. And Christ's prayer was answered that day. God's wrath did not destroy those who were crucifying Christ, but God delayed his wrath for unbelieving sinners until that last day when Christ will appear again, and this time he will appear in glory. And then all unbelievers will realize their rebellion against God, and they will cry for the mountains to fall on them, and it will be too late. The Lord answered Christ's prayer that day and withheld judgment on sinners so that the soldiers were not killed for what they were doing and one of them became a believer, entered into the kingdom of God. A few weeks later, after the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, some 3,000 of those, many of whom were probably involved with all of these affairs, came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 2.31. And Acts 4, specifically, thousands of priests were coming to saving faith. Acts 6, 7, no doubt many of these same priests that had tormented and cried for his crucifixion. Calvin commented, many of the people afterward drank by faith the blood which they had shed. There's a third example of mocking the crucifixion, and that's the mocking from the criminals themselves. 
Verse 32 and 39, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. Verse 39, and one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Only Luke records that there were two others that were actually led in the procession with him, and they were crucified, one on his right, one on his left, fulfilling Isaiah 53, 12, that he was numbered with the transgressors. The point is that everyone has forsaken him. He's, he's dying alone. There's no one there to help him, not from the highest Supreme Court to the cr- common criminal, all Jew and Gentile. It's laying stress that Jesus is dying alone with no help, no encouragement from friends. He's a solitary, righteous man dying alone, surrounded on all sides by his enemies, fulfilling Psalm 22:7. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. In Psalm 69, 20, scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none for comforters, but I found none. Luke records these three examples of mocking to the crucifixion, but then Luke's cameras scrolling the crowd, and he focuses on three examples of faith to the crucifixion. The first is the faith of this one criminal, verse 40. The other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Only Luke records this account of this one criminal's profession of faith in Jesus Christ. God has opened this man's eyes to see himself. He truly acknowledges his sin. He's being justly executed. He's justly under the wrath and condemnations of God. He's repenting. He's seeing his heart. And he's seeing Christ. He knows that this man is innocent. This man is being condemned for there's no sin in him. God has opened his heart to believe in Christ, and he believes in Christ's power to save him. Notice he calls him Lord. Jesus, take me with you into your kingdom. We're familiar with these words, but I would encourage you to stop and think. He doesn't come to these theological conclusions in these last couple hours on the cross. Could this have been a covenant child in a godly home who had heard the scriptures for years? Could this have been somebody who had been standing in the crowds and watched Jesus' miracles and his teaching for these years? But it's now at this moment on the cross that the Holy Spirit is reaching down and opening his heart. And all these truths of Christ that he has known have now become personal, and he's putting his personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ on his deathbed. He prays humbly for Christ to keep his soul. He only asks to be remembered, but Jesus promises him so much more. Oh, no, you're going to be with me 
relationship and intimacy, and I'm taking you into my kingdom, my victory. Jesus is already assuring him death is not the end. Immediately at death, we enter into the presence of God, into paradise, into glory, and Jesus assures him of salvation. This is the last recorded believer of the Old Testament. And he will be with Christ. Again, we see the love of Christ in his greatest weakness, in his suffering and dying. He's granting forgiveness and mercy to a man who believes in him. What a picture here that salvation for that criminal, salvation for all of us is is undeserved love. It's not of works. What work could this man do to merit redemption? Nothing. Simply faith in the grace of Christ, in the work of Christ, all of grace by faith alone, and Christ assured him of salvation. That famous scientist, Nicholas Copernicus, prayed, I do not ask for the grace that you gave St. Paul, nor do I dare to ask for the grace that you granted to St. Peter, but the mercy which you did show to the dying robber, that mercy shall show to me. We see the faith of the one criminal. There's another example of the faith of Centurion, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. The centurion witnessed the death of Christ. The centurion witnessed those three hours of darkness from about noon to three in the afternoon. There's an intentional parallel here in the judgment of the crucifixion. The three hours of darkness parallels the three days of darkness that God brought in judgment upon Egypt, one of the plagues. God pouring out darkness as a judgment for Egypt's idolatry and rebellion to the Lord. At Christ's death, it was darkness for three hours. And God is not judging the pagan world in that darkness of the crucifixion. He's judging his son in our place. And for those three hours, God is pouring out utter hell upon Christ, crushing him. And he willingly took that penalty that was due to us in love to save his sheep. The centurion witnessed those three hours of darkness. The centurion also witnessed Christ's shout of committal, verse 46 At the end of the three hours, Christ called for a drink so he could wet his tongue and make an announcement, and then he records in a loud voice. And if you read this with the Gospel of John, you realize that first the words that Jesus said with a loud voice was, it is finished. All has been accomplished. The wrath of God has been completely satisfied. And then Luke continues in verse 46, and this is the first time I've noticed this, He's still praying with a loud voice. Psalm 31.5, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he said that with strength, and he said that with a loud voice. 
and he breathed his last. None of the Gospels record the death of Christ as we would in language Jesus died. No, they all have different expressions. John records that 1930 that Jesus bowed his head, an expression of putting a head on the pillow, going to bed in peace, and he handed over his soul to his father. No sudden jerking, of, no suffocation, willingly laying down his death. Matthew 27, he yielded, he sent forth his life to, as, as if dismissing a servant. Luke is recording, he breathed his last. Physical death did not overcome the Lord Jesus. He did not die by crucifixion. He didn't die in physical exhaustion, suffocating under the crucifixion. He didn't die going into blackouts from all the blood that he had lost. No, he, with a shout of triumph and strength, he willingly laid down his life. Death did not triumph over him. He triumphed over death. His death was a strike to the death itself. And so that now we as believers are not to be terrified of death and the grave because he's won the victory over it. I love to read at the grave of a believer, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? And Luke intentionally connects the death of Jesus Christ to the ripping of the veil. The end of verse 45 tells us, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus called out with a loud voice. The veil of the temple was several layers thick, a very heavy material. Its thickness, its width, was the thickness of a man's hand. It was 30 feet wide and 90 feet high. In other words, impossible to tear by natural means. It's around that curtain that the high priest, only the high priest, would go, and only once a year, and only with the blood of a substitute sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has just announced it's finished. And God tore that veil in two from top to bottom. God is showing us that the glory has left this old temple. All the symbols of the sacrificial system has ended. It will never again be restored. God has ripped it from top to bottom, Matthew 27, 51. In other words, God has opened the way to us. God has called redeemed sinners to himself because now the work of Jesus Christ has made full payment for all of our sin forever. And then God tore the veil. Zechariah 3, 9, I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And God tore the, t- the veil. Because it was the last and the final shedding of blood. Atonement has been made forever. Hebrews 10, 19. 
Brothers, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure waters. Christ's death is a sacrifice as a substitute for the eternal wrath that we deserved. He fully satisfied the wrath of God, paid for all of our sins, drank the cup of the wrath of God to its dregs, so that all now who put their trust and faith in him, there is no condemnation. We're not told, but you wonder, were the lambs, in the temple still being slaughtered for the Jewish Passover that day. As the veil is ripped in two, the blood of the Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, was shed for us. Centurion was witnessing these things and he professed his faith in Christ, verse 47. Certainly this man was innocent. Matthew 27 records that the centurion said, he is the son of God. Even in our verse, surely this man is innocent. Much better translation is he is righteous. This is much more than just Pilate saying this man's not guilty. The centurion is saying he is righteous. He is just. There's no sin in him. And you see what's happening? Here's now a Gentile centurion who's the first believer in the New Covenant. He's the only one who praised God at the cross, verse 47. So we have a a criminal and we have a Roman centurion as being the last of the Old Testament, first of the New Testament. Jesus didn't come to die for good people. He came to die for sinners who know that they're sinners and have put their faith in Christ. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. John 1.12, but to all who do receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become the children of God. That day there was lots of soldiers watching the crucifixion. I imagine all of them have been doing this for many years. They've become jaded and hard men. They're just doing orders, sitting sitting idly by and gambling for clothes, mocking. They'll execute their orders and they'll go back to the barracks that night and have a good sleep. They just kill people for a job. But there was another soldier that day who saw the reality of what was going on. God opened his eyes and saw that Christ was the Son of God, the righteous man. People today fall in one of those two categories of those two soldiers. There's lots of people who know about the death of Christ, looking right at it. Maybe you can even recite the creed, but they don't see really what's going on. Don't really get it. It's not until you can say, my sin put in there. I'm the one that crucified Christ. 
that God has opened your eyes and you really see what's happening. We have the faith of the criminal. We have the faith of the centurion. And the third example that's given to us is the faith of Joseph of Arimathea, verses 50 and following. There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then he took it down and wrapped it in linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Both Luke and Mark tell us that Joseph was a member of the council. That means he's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a member of the Supreme Court. He was not there when they condemned Jesus because the scriptures tell us that the vote was unanimous to condemn Christ. So he was not present when the Supreme Court took its decision to crucify Christ. And he had been a secret disciple, John 19, but now he realizes that the death of his Savior, he's no longer going to be a secret disciple. And he's going to put it all on the line. And he's going to come and request the body of Christ that he might bury his Lord and his Savior. Just as an aside, you do remember and do realize that the burial of Christ by his friends is proof that he really did die. Right? If the enemies had buried Christ... They would think nothing of burying a man who was still alive. But friends, if there was even the slightest breath, the slightest heart murmur, the slightest indication that he's still, there's still life, you wouldn't bury him. Proof that he really did die. And Joseph comes, an example of his love and his faith, and what a costly love this was. Joseph's love and faith, he faced dangers from the Gentile leaders, he faces danger from the Jewish leaders. Joseph's costly love is seen, first of all, in the danger that he faced from the Gentile leaders. Isn't it interesting? This is his walk-on part in the whole history of redemption. It's only here at the death of Christ that he's mentioned in the Gospels. He's not mentioned before this, and he's not mentioned after this. All the other disciples except John have fled. And here comes Joseph, his one role in the history of redemption. Mark 15 says he went boldly. He's summoning up his courage, and he comes to Pilate. He knows that his request it will not be received favorably from a Roman leader. You do realize that it was he's as a member of the Supreme Court have the Supreme Court has just humiliated Pilate. They've just manipulated him into doing what he knew he should not have done, but he handed Christ over to be crucified by the power of the Supreme Court of the Jewish people. And here comes a member of the Jewish court asking for a favor. Oh, yeah, this is going to be done. There is no reason that Joseph had any expectation that Pilate was going to be gracious to him. And he also had no expectation that this would even be granted, even if Pilate were favorable toward him. Because you see, by Roman law, Christ should not have been buried. 
Roman law was that anyone who was crucified was to be left on the cross. It was part of continuing the shame. Usually they weren't buried at all. They just let the, the vultures come and eat the flesh as a way to keep showing the people this is roadkill. This is what will happen to you if you rebel against Rome. Finally, after the vultures have eaten all the flesh, Rome would release the bodies only to family, only if they were magnanimous. Except for one exception. Rome, by law, would never release the body for burial if it was a crime of high treason. On principle, it would be denied. What was Christ's charge? High treason. He was crucified as the king of the Jews. High treason. By Roman law, his body by principle should never have been released for burial. But Pilate knew that this man was innocent. Pilate knew that the Jews wanted him dead out of jealousy. He knew there was no charge in this man. And God moved Pilate's heart against Roman law to deliver the body for burial. But Roman law was clear that even if a Roman leader would release the bones of one crucified, there could not be any ceremony or public honor. It was not allowed. There was even no mourning. There was no ceremony in connection with the interment. So when Nicodemus and Joseph come and request the body for burial, you do realize they're risking their lives to give Christ high honors and the burial of a rich man. He was buried, John 19, with 75 pounds of costly spices. He was buried as a rich man against Roman law, but to fulfill God's word, Isaiah 53, 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, even though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He died and was buried with the rich. Joseph's costly love was seen by the danger that he faced from Rome, the Gentiles, but it's also seen in the danger that he faced from the Jewish leaders. By Jewish law also, and remember he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, he knows what Jewish law is. By Jewish law, a person that was crucified could not be buried in a family tomb. The Jews had two common mass burial sites for those who were executed. There was a mass burial site for those who were executed by sword or beheaded or strangled. They'd be buried in one mass common grave, unmarked. And there was another common unmarked mass grave for those who were hanged or burned or crucified. Jesus to be crucified, his body to release by Jewish law, was to be thrown into a mass burial site. And Joseph knew this. And Joseph knew that he had only minutes because the Jew, Jewish leaders would not allow these bodies to be left on the cross for Passover, which was starting already. Joseph knew that he had only minutes to claim this body. 
And if Pilate was to release him, that it could be buried in his own grave instead of a mass burial grave, which would confuse the proof of the resurrection. But Joseph stirs up his courage and he asks for the body of Jesus to be buried so that it won't be thrown into a common mass burial plot so that he could be buried with the rich. Do you see God's providence over it all? This one man comes down to this one man. And within minutes, Joseph's action would not be permitted by Jewish law, and also Jewish, Joseph's action would be costly. You realize what he's doing is going to cost him everything. We've already read in the Gospel of John that what the Sanhedrin does to those who don't, uh, who follow Christ. And do you remember when the blind man, the parents of the blind man, were questioned by the Sanhedrin about their son who was healed and he wouldn't testify? The Sanhedrin had them thrown out of the synagogue. If this Sanhedrin put Jesus Christ to death, crucifixion, an innocent, innocent man, they had to look for false witnesses. What are they going to do to Joseph? After the resurrection, Christ finds them, his disciples, behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. They know what the Sanhedrin's going to do. And Joseph was a rich man, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-three. He's going to lose it all. He's going to lose his position on the Supreme Court. He's going to lose his wealth. He's going to be cast out of the Sanhedrin. He's going to be blacklisted the rest of his life. But it was time for him to declare his allegiance to Jesus Christ. His love and his faith in Jesus Christ to be numbered with his disciples and he risks everything. You see God's providence and control in orchestrating this whole account. One man, his one walk on roll. And he does it within minutes so that there will be proof of the resurrection for our sake. God stooping to us in our weakness to arrange all these details. Luke is writing his gospel to Theophilus. What's your response to Jesus Christ? He shows us six responses here to Jesus Christ. Now the cameras come to you. What's your response to Jesus Christ? Every time you hear the claims of Christ, That is the question before you. What have you done with Christ? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Out of gratitude for the gospel, have you given your life to him? What is your response to Jesus Christ? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Shall we pray?
Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open each of our hearts to believe these things truly and deeply and sincerely. You would cause each of us to give our lives to Christ. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins and salvation is for all, all of us simply by grace alone, by faith alone and not by deeds of righteousness that we have done, any more than that criminal on the cross could present any merit to Christ. Cause us to rejoice in the gospel, rejoice in the love of our Savior, to be secure in his love today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.